When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hello and welcome back to the West Ham Breakdown in its truest fashion after a 4-1 defeat to Aston Villa. I'm Jack Alderson and I'm joined as always by Cal. How are you after this one? Feeling as in meltdown as the rest of the West Ham fan base? <laughs> uh, nah, not not quite so bad. Uh, obviously disappointing whenever we succumb to a 4-1 loss, but I think part of it is the fact that Villa were just incredibly clinical. Um, and I think sometimes you do just have to hold your hands up and go, we got beaten by a good team. They've not lost at home for ages now. I think they're onto some sort of record-breaking stretch almost, I think, for, for Villa standards. Um, so, yeah, I think obviously there are some issues that we're going to pick out in detail. But I think um, looking more broadly at it, I think just, yeah, Emery's come in and worked wonders there and they've, They've recruited incredibly well. And if you play against the team in that sort of form with those sort of players and you're not at 100%, those are the sort of results that uh, that are going to happen. It's funny, isn't it? It's, you know, the longer you get involved with doing analytical chats or analysis of football, the more you come back round to uh, when you don't play very well against teams that are quite <laughs> good, you lose games. Um, yeah, it gets less and less complicated the longer we do this. Um, yeah, I just thought they look like a really good team. They're in really, really good form. And uh, they were sharper, they were much sharper. The intensity was there. Um, they had stronger individual performances on the day. We had a couple of players, or more than a couple of players, who just weren't at it, which you're just not going to get away with away from home against teams in, in, in top form. I do think 4-1 was probably a little bit harsh, but also in some ways fair, because the errors that we made in crucial moments... Um, of the game kind of led to those, to some of those situations. So I, in many ways, I'm not surprised that it, that it looks like it does on paper, but it's not a true reflection of the full 90 minutes. That's what I would say. I think we had some periods where we were really good in the game. I think the biggest issue that we had in those periods was actually creating serious opportunities and converting dominance, periods of dominance into, into actual chances for example lots and lots of corners in the second half no real clear-cut 
I mean, Agard has his shot on the second phase of one, and Cash, I think it's Cash, isn't it, that heads it up over the bar. Yep. But even then, I think Martinez is saving that shot. We didn't we didn't create enough of a sort of like guilt edge moments where you think, right, that's the the chance that we need to take. So it's not even the kind of thing where you're coming after a performance and saying, well, we had lots of opportunities and we just didn't take them. We just actually didn't get to the point where we were um, creating those those opportunities. Even even early in the game, you know, first 10 minutes, I felt we had decent control um, at that point and several opportunities to to play in behind uh, Villa's back line and just didn't quite um, come off for us. Yeah, I think... The first thing to come to after after this is is obviously the narrative, as always after a West Ham loss, is that David Moyes has taken us as far as he can, and the low block, all out defence approach is the is the limiting factor uh, for this team of extremely talented individuals. And yet, on a second watch, or even on the first watch, <laughs> and looking at the data, that's not necessarily our take after the game, is it? Yeah, no, I think. Um... Uh, quite the contrary actually uh, I think there prior to the game would have been an expectation from myself of how I think we would approach the game and how I thought David Moyes would have us set up um, rooted primarily in the fact that against Brighton and Chelsea <laughs> we played a certain sort of way uh, who also have exhibited a preference to build up from the back um, which Villa if you look at the data uh, also are keen to do. Um, they've got one of the lowest launch percentages in terms of both goal kicks and goal kick live passes um, compared to us who obviously have one of the highest, um, albeit less high than last season. Um, but yeah, I think it would have been obvious how Villa would have liked to have built up. And when we've been faced with those sorts of teams previously, we've refused to be baited into the press and, and we sit off and we try and hit them on the counter. And um, I think it was complete opposite against Villa. We actually recorded one of our lowest PPDAs of the season Um which for those of you listening, it can be quite confusing to hear lowest and think aggressive, but the lower the number, the higher and more intense the press. So um, we would press him pretty high up. Um, at times it looked effective. At times it meant that it was very easy for Villa to invite the press in and then play through, which we'll come on to. Um, but yeah, I think the notion that it was typical Moyes and he's taken us as far as we come is kind of just, it is not true. I think it's an easy thing to grasp at. And I think people are confusing performance with result and because we've lost it's easy to reach for the oh Moyes has taken us as far as we come but if you actually look at the way we played and and the way we were out of possession it was as far from a David Moyes away performance as as one would expect because we were we were so far into their half at times rather than sitting on the edge of our own box which is is what I certainly would have expected and, and I would imagine you would have expected the same yeah I mean we'll come to talk about the ways in which it went wrong but it is worth saying that we did still get some seriously promising high turnovers in in the match, and the, and the game can kind of be condensed down to the moment where Kudus fails to control the ball and, and it falls to McGinn, and McGinn plays a wonderful pass through to to Watkins, and they score. That kind of sums it up in in many ways, I think, for this one because it was in a period where we were we were dominating the game, we were pressing quite well at that point. It was coming coming off for us. We were in a in a stretch of the game where it was coming off more for us than it than it wasn't, and we had some stretches of the game that will come to where it was not coming off for us and it was going going wrong um but yeah i think ultimately it's that it's that failure to control that pass or in other moments where you know there's a moment in the first half seven minutes in where Ward prowse nicks the ball about 25 yards out from goal and um 
doesn't get a pass off to anyone in a promising position, loses the ball. There's a couple of moments where Alvarez went side turnovers, but it doesn't lead to anything really promising. It would have looked different. And I think people would have been, been able, more able to identify the difference in our out of possession approach and being more engaged and pressing more intensely in this one. Had we actually created chances yeah. from, from those turnovers, but actually you're looking at the game as a whole and saying, yeah, you've actually won a couple of the turnovers that you're looking for from the out of possession approach, but you then haven't, been clinical in the moments where you've turned the ball over you've probably lost it again and then you're you're watching the team do what it shouldn't do really looking at our back line which is defending well no team really wants to do this defending large spaces at speed against players that are very good in transition which is the situation that we found ourselves in in, in, in several moments in in the match um Although, although, like I said, it did, it did go well at times. We were able to win some high turnovers, and and then it's you know the performances really of Lucas Paquetar, um, Thomas Suchek, and Mikel Antonio. Those were three of the four players starting in the in the more forward positions in this game, and and all three well, certainly didn't have their best games. Thomas Suchek was pretty pretty awful. Um, I, I wouldn't say that his actual actions were particularly terrible. It's just that he just didn't get into yep. the game enough and uh, Antonio didn't have a very good first half at all and um, Pacata I think just telegraphed a lot of what, what he did um, in the game it was very predictable wanting to go in behind so quickly wanting to play over the top of Villa's defence all the time it made it a little bit easy for them to to regain possession and control periods of the match um, so without those players firing and being at, at their best it, it made it difficult for us to be clinical in those moments and then yeah coming on to, to to the other side of things where it where it didn't quite function i just think the midfield battle for us defensively was was something that we never really got a grip of and and you said to me before we started recording it's something that i've spoken about well for years now really <laughs> which it is um how four two three one becomes four one four one, and how situational or, or or in this case starting with a a double pivot and build up a, a sort of four two shape or a two four shape can really manipulate our four two three one defensive system and force us into situations where we're quite uncomfortable and crucially the gap between the midfield line and the defensive line is just way way too big, and you have a you have a situation where there's no pressure on the ball. And there's also way too much space th- for that ball to then be played into, which we saw a lot in the game and a lot of situations where Alvarez resultantly is completely isolated in the middle of the pitch against really good players. And um, yeah, Nicolo Zaniolo able to exert far too much influence on this fixture. Yeah, 100%. And I think um, when you look at the numbers, I think it's borne out that we have, we, yeah, the midfield battle is where, is where we lost the game really. Um, I think we won, well, so far this season on average, we've won about 60% of our defensive duels uh, across the 90. And I think it's kind of what you would expect from a Moyes team that has Suchek and, and Alvarez and, and Paqueta, who has certainly had sort of an evolution in, in his out of possession work and uh, his intensity and the sort of amount of interceptions that he's uh, he's getting per game, but significant drop off across the board um, against McGee and Zaniolo and um, obviously Douglas Louise as well, who I thought it's worth noting had had a brilliant game um, in all in all facets. But yeah, Paqueta I think only won one of his five defensive duels, um, so obviously twenty percent, which is a 45% drop off from his season average. So if you if you're getting players putting in performances like that in 
in the battleground, which without wanting to <laughs> sound too cliche, but that is where the games can be won and lost. If you're losing that midfield battle and everything is going through the middle, then then it stands to reason that you are going to be up against it from the off. Um, and then I think, yeah, someone like Thomas Suchek, who aside from his box crashing and, and defending the box, I think you would associate with ball recoveries and sort of stopping counters so effectively by always being in the right position and kind of just using his spidery legs to intercept passes and then play a short, safe pass into a more creative midfielder alongside him. But he came away from the game with just one ball recovery, which I think, again, if we look at season averages, he was averaging six a game. And yeah, I know he wasn't on the pitch for the full 90, but still you'd expect him to come away with it at least more than one ball recovery, particularly given that a lot of the things were going through the middle, um, which we'll come to talk about in a bit. And then, yeah, I think Alvarez, again, we saw a drop off in terms of his success rate. I think he only won four of 10 jewels, but I think when you get that deep into the midfield, there's only so much blame I can leave with Alvarez because it's the people ahead of him that have failed to do their jobs in terms of closing those lanes and leaving him massively outnumbered, whereby it's almost a bit harsh to expect him to win many of those duels because he's he's kind of up shit's creek already before he even gets to get involved. Can we break into some of the minutiae of what's going on there um, around the midfielders' performances and 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 sort of the conditions that 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 created, but well, the conditions that allowed for some weaker performances compared to the yep. season average? When we talk about pressing high, I think. One of the things that, that that's really difficult for Suchek in this game is again talking about double pivot um, and, and teams playing through a double pivot is that when you're four two three one and your strikers ahead, going out to the centre backs, um, that number ten player is always going to have two players to to deal with, and, and I think Villa did a very effective job at drawing him to one of the players, whether it be Kamara or Louise, and then playing through. Uh, the other the other player which really took Suchek out of the game from a from a defensive uh, perspective it made it really hard for him to get close to the ball he would be closing down one option but then they would always use the 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 other Um, and then what that 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 then causes is that engagement from one of the players in our double pivot to have to step out if we're going to press which we were trying to do in this game to step out then and try and close down the 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 six or eight that they're trying to play through. So we saw several, several examples of James Ward-Prowse making a run from defensive midfield all the way forward to try and support um, the press. And then often situations where you could just play off of his shoulder, basically. Um, (laughs) So I think that, and I think that's one of the things that's probably most difficult for, for Ward-Prowse when we're looking through, through bits of the game before we started recording, we were looking at different uh, moments in the match and it, and it pops up um, on Villa's first goal where Ward-Prowse tries to go forward to, to, to fix an issue ahead of him. And then, um, oh, sorry, no, actually in that, in that instance, I think it's Alvarez who goes forward and it's Ward-Prowse who's left um, in in the position that we're talking about, the sixth position and Ward-Prowse, being, I think, from Southampton, Hassan Hussle, the style of play that he had played there for quite a long time can be quite man-oriented. So he's with, um, I think it must be uh, Zaniolo at, at that point. And there's just a, a rotation um, with Diaby coming into into a more central position. Well, Prowse doesn't really scan. He just goes with the man. It allows him to play through. And then again, on the fourth goal, um, you're looking at Mikel Antonio and asking where the hell he is. Um, and we weren't, I think we... we uh, given up is maybe a bit too strong, but we weren't yeah. at it uh, in, in that last um, 10 minutes. The game had clearly gone and uh, Michael Antonio doesn't recover, but Will Prowse just switches off 
there's about five, six seconds where he's just out of the game, hasn't noticed that there's not a left midfielder there to, to cover um, Villa pass it, you know, between two midfielders several times before they actually engage and try and play through. And it's it's just too late by the time that Ward-Prowse has noticed the danger to try and cover it. It happened on several occasions in the game, uh, even for Watkins' um, chance in the first half where he missed um, on the spin getting past Zuma. Um, that's a, another situation where Ward-Prowse has just been a little bit too slow um, to, to notice the danger. And, and it's often, yeah, it's often that danger behind him rather than yeah. in front of him. Uh, and you get that a little bit, I think, when he plays deeper and it's magnified when you want to press because he's not then solely focused on, right, here's my zone. I'm protecting this space. I'm protecting the space in front of this centre-back. When you're going out to press, he's constantly oscillating between a responsibility of staying in his position and being defensively secure, helping us to be defensively secure, and jumping out of his position to focus on trying to press down um, his his opposite number in, in, in the Villa team. So I think that's some of what really goes wrong for us in midfield. Suchek's able to be taken out of the game. They're able to force Ward-Prowse into somewhat of a between position for a lot of the game where he's neither in in one place nor the other. And then that creates overloading where you get Zaniola and Diaby into positions where they can be um, really, really threatening. Um, it is It is an issue that's happened a lot before and I don't know whether we can start to posit some of the ideas that would potentially solve it. But it's pretty much as simple as when West Ham come up against the box midfield and try to defend 4-2-3-1 and try to press all three of those things together, which isn't, you know, that uncommon. <laughs> Particularly mm. wasn't that uncommon last season when a lot of teams yep. were playing box midfield, um, which I think was had a large part to do with some of our periods of really poor form um, yep. last season. Um, this this happens a lot and you have this isolation and the gap between the defensive line and the midfield line and it becomes easy for teams to play through the centre, which is everything a David Moyes team doesn't want to happen. Um, the only thing I noticed in the game that may be a solve for this is is just attacking the ball side of the pitch more aggressively and leaving space on the other side of the pitch rather than trying to spread so thin across the pitch and it creating gaps in the centre. And we saw one instance, again, talking about that those high turnovers that we did create, whether it's actually two instances, whether it's Kudus's that he he d- doesn't control or Warprouse's that he does control in the first half but doesn't find a pass, where the team becomes almost more of a situational 4-2-2-2, uh, where the winger stepping inside and uh, more aggressive kind of man-to-man um, uh, out-of-possession system um, pressing and then you leave, the pass that you leave is rather than the bounce through the eight and then the chance to play through the centre of the pitch, this is all pretty pretty jargony so i'll probably have to put an article up so you can actually visualize a lot of the things i'm saying at this point um you leave the space on the far side of the pitch so you attack the ball side center back the the ball carrier much more aggressively and you leave the only pass that they have being the big switch out to the to the far side fullback um obviously it's imperfect you don't want (laughs) uh to, to leave any gaps um but whatever you do, if you're going to press, there's going to be some kind of free player somewhere yeah. or some kind of space to play into. And um, at least with those kind of more looped passes, A, it gives you more time to get back because the ball yeah. has to travel in the air and it takes longer for those passes to drop. So it allows the, t- the extra time for the midfield to reset. 
Uh, and B, um, and most crucially, is it forces the opposition wide, forces the opposition into the wide spaces, which suits your central defenders, particularly Kurt Zuma, rather than situations where teams are just attacking the space at speed through the center of the pitch uh, and exposing some of the weaknesses in your defense. Yeah, no, 100%. And I think you've you've covered it nicely there. But I think, yeah, I, I don't know. I'd, it's certainly an issue that's creeped up a lot. I think my confusion lay with the fact that we came up against these, or not the exact same, but similar midfields last season against both Brighton and Chelsea and got punished. And then this season we came up against Brighton and Chelsea and took a completely different approach and came away with six points against both of those sides. Um, so the confusion is that it seemed like we had found a solution to these sorts of teams um, and it worked really well. And yes, some fans were, or some people will complain that it's maybe uh, less pretty football or football's not played in the right way. But ultimately, if you score three goals in both games and, and come away with six points, then I think really uh, you can't complain too much. So I think that's just why I was so surprised that we we took such a similar approach against the team that, like I say, they're not completely similar, but some of the principles in terms of how Emery wants to build up from the back is is definitely similar uh, to both Pochettino and De Zerbi. So it was just bizarre that, yeah, we came away with an 11.4 PPDA, whereas against both Brighton and Chelsea, it was above 30. So it's a completely different approach. Um, and yeah, I think it's bizarre in the sense that like the Kudus one could have resulted in a high turnover that led to an equaliser at a time where we'd kind of held control of the game for the last 15 minutes since we scored. And then the reverse happens. Kudus, unfortunately, can't get it under control. McGinn plays a pass into very, very informed Watkins, who does brilliantly and, and puts a great finish in. But that moment alone could be enough for Moyes to look at it and go, nah, I don't like pressing. But I'm pressing, it's too risky. Like, this is, we tried it and we've been punished. Whereas it was one moment away from being a perfectly good press. So, I think, yeah, it's that sort of risk-reward relationship, isn't it? It's like pressing is inherently risky, but it can lead to high turnovers, which can lead to goals. But if it isn't done perfectly, then you do get exploited. And I think, yeah, the middle was clearly an area that Villa looked to exploit. Um, I think we spoke before the pod about a couple of their goals where they found themselves in wide areas, which is where we want to funnel them. It's where David Moyes likes to force the opposition. He wants to get them into the wide channels so that the likes of a Gerd and Zuma can defend the box uh, from aerial balls, uh, whereas Villa found themselves in those positions and instead of crossing into the box, decided to keep the ball on the deck, work it into the central areas again. And then you see either moments where, uh, because of the midfield switching off, like we spoke about, Douglas Luiz find himself on the edge of the box and is able to force a low-driven shot in. Um, Paqueta, again, one of the midfielders guilty of not scanning and covering his zone well. Um, and I think that speaks to another potential exploitable area of a David Moyes system is that if the midfield aren't together and aren't switched on and aren't doing their job of covering those zones, then it's, it's easy. It can be easy to exploit it or secondarily, you see them coming into central zones again, playing the ball on the deck. And then you see a GERD having to defend on the floor rather than in the air in those sort of more intricate positions where unfortunately the footwork of Leon Bailey, that low center of gravity and sort of quick shift of pace, allows him to sort of leave a good stumbling and yes it's bad defending but again it's because of the weaknesses and the the midfield not potentially doing their job and covering those spaces and allowing Villa to far too easily get the ball into those central areas that they know that they have the upper hand in 
A, because that's not how we like to defend, but B, they've got 70 minutes of evidence of, <laughs> of them doing it very well and they're going to go, right, well, here's the weakness. Let's continue to exploit it. So unfortunately, yeah, it's uh, a couple of yeah things that just didn't didn't go to plan and I think that's the, the hallmark of the David Moyes system, right? It's kind of built on being rigid and everyone working together and everyone doing their job correctly. And if you do that, you're very hard to break down. And as soon as there's a crack, uh, the whole thing tumbles around it and it becomes very easy for teams to get in behind, particularly when you've got a defence that don't really like to play a high line and aren't particularly good running with their back to goal. Um, yeah, well, we're very much a team, aren't we? We're not. Yeah. We, we, we rely on on the on the system functioning well to bring the best out of our individuals rather than individuals performing exceptionally to bring the best out of the, the team. That's that's certainly the relationship. 100%. And I think on that... Kind of inverse Slavin Bilic vibes, isn't it? Yeah, like, totally yeah. the opposite of what we were doing. And on that, Watkins goal as well I suppose that's the perfect example isn't it it's like A they've potentially well it's just because that's the pass that's on and Watkins is the most informed but choosing to go down that side against Zuma rather than a GERD who has much better recovery pace etc if that's a better team with better individuals I don't know the first player that comes to mind is Mickey van der Ven who this season has shown how incredibly gifted he is as a centre-back and he has that recovery pace and those are the defenders that cost you upwards of 40, 50 mil usually. But again, Zuma, who doesn't have that pace, like those are the moments that if the opposition can find them, they're, they're going to be where we fall down. Whereas against an elite team, you might have a faster version of Kurt Zuma who just closes Watkins down and puts in a slide tackle and forces out for a throw-in. But we're West Ham and we don't get those players really. Um, and unfortunately for us, it was Ollie Watkins that was on the ball who is electric and also in a seriously clinical vein of form at the minute. And I think... For what it's worth, I think Zuma really did everything and more than I would have expected, to be honest. Firstly, I wouldn't have expected him to keep pace with Ollie Watkins bearing down on goal, and I think he just about did. And when you get there, you want to show him A, onto his weak foot and to the near post so that he can't whip it across goal. There's both of those things. And unfortunately, (laughs) Watkins on his weak foot is able to fire it into the uh, upper stanchion of the near post and leaves both Zuma and Ariola helpless, really. I, I'm one of the one of the questions I actually want to ask you just just came to me when you were talking there about uh, you know Moyes the the way a Moyes system functions and then you know stepping out to press more aggressively and and how the kind of um, knock on effects kind of build through through the team when st- things start to go go wrong. What one of the things that's come up in conversations I've had with John McKenzie from the TIFO um, podcast about West Ham under David Moyes is that there's kind of this cycle. And under Moyes, you start with a very pragmatic uh, approach, a more defensive approach. You sit in your in your shape and you you counterattack, and then you get good results. You start to you start to do quite well, and then there seems to be this idea that you've got to then build on that and play more like a big team and try and step out and press and try and control the ball a bit better. And then that doesn't go so well, and you end up reverting back, and then that's when your 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 results start to improve. And we've seen that in a sort of macro sense. Yeah. Over the course of seasons at West Ham, where last season we tried to play a little bit more ambitiously, didn't do so well. And then we started this season back very similar to how we started when David Moyes first came in with a with a clear focus on defending as a unit, being quite deep, focusing on set pieces and counterattacks as the main um chance generation methods that we went through are we is there any chance we're seeing a sort of mini Moyes cycle so far this season where we've played quite well doing that got some really good results and then we've come up against a team like Villa who are doing quite well and, and then he thinks right this is an opportunity to test ourselves see where we are yeah 
trying to be sort of that more ambitious version of West Ham and we get slapped back down <laughs> to to reality doing that, which is kind of what happens almost every time we try and do that under under noise. Yeah. yeah, I think so. Um I think particularly in the context of what we mentioned earlier, whereby it just didn't make much sense to me from A looking at the data prior to the game and B looking at the way that Villa played and how we've approach similar teams this season like there was no logical explanation for us not to just try and repeat the Chelsea and the Brighton performances which went well the evidence was there that we could do it the evidence was there that it worked and it also played to our strength so I don't I don't really see the logical explanation for trying to do something different in this situation especially away from home uh, which is usually when David Moyes likes to sit off even more so yeah I, I don't know if it was just kind of a roll of the dice sort of sort of game I wonder if as well maybe there's an element of um like the system like we say it's a it's a team game and it's a unit but it is built largely around Mikel Antonio and it has to he has to play well for it to work and if it if he's not there playing well then the whole system doesn't work and I wonder if there's an element of okay Antonio's not really been in inspired form this season he's been okay but he's not probably the best option we have as a striker if you don't consider systems I think the both probably Kudus and Bowen could do a more prolific job up top in a different system as just a striker number nine in general so I wonder if there's an element of okay well we maybe need to come up with a different way of playing so that we're not so dependent on Antonio because he is getting to a point now where he's not able to do all of the stuff that make this system work really well so therefore if we can't do that and we don't have him, then the system doesn't work. So we need another system, if that makes sense. So I, I wonder if there was an element of trying, let's try and do something else. And you can imagine that, I don't know, with the added energy and pace of, of a Kudus up top and, and the sort of tenacity of a bow, and then a pressing side might work better than with a sort of slightly less rapid Mikel Antonio than he was a few years ago. Um, as good as his pressing can be at times, emphasis on at times. I think he shows some intelligence in terms of what lanes to close down. But I think other times when he's clearly knackered, it, it kind of just looks like a thankless task of him kind of walking between lane to lane. Um, but yeah, I, I don't know. It just did. It, it was a bizarre decision for me. It's not at all how I thought we'd approach the game. And um, I can't say I'm particularly surprised with the result, albeit I think 4-1 probably was flattering to Villa. Um, just a case that they have exceptionally good players in exceptionally good form. Oh, I was hoping you would suggest it was one of those moist cycles because if it is one of those moist cycles and we have been well beaten, it means that we're going to go back to doing what we do very well from from here on, uh, which would be which would be nice, really. I'd like that. I think that's basically where we are. And when you talk about upsides of other systems and potential for us to play in different ways with different strikers and and maybe be a bit more ambitious, press a little bit more intensely, I just worry about other players in the squad. You know, like, yeah, and I think maybe there's an element of Moyes. I don't, I don't know. This is suggesting he's some sort of pseudo masochist, but like everyone, maybe there's players that are unhappy with us not playing a certain way and all that. So maybe he goes right, fuck it. I'm going to play that way. We're going to get battered, and then I've got the evidence to come back and go. Look, you can't do it. So we're going back to the David Moyes way, and we're going to start winning again. I don't know if that's how it works. I don't know what the dynamics are, but there probably is an element of him thinking that I know how I want to play, and it's been working and. That we, yeah, I, I don't think he's out there trying to prove a point by going to throw a game at Villa, but I think there probably is an element of it that approach not working now and him, like I said earlier, the way that Kudus doesn't control that and we get punished on the counter and he's, that's him going, look, this is 
why I don't play a high line. This is why I don't commit to overpressing because it leaves gaps in the midfield and it leaves our defence in no man's land running with our backs to goal without the necessary pace to do that. So I'm doing what gets the best out of this squad because we don't have a back four of insane athletes. We have a 31-year-old Vladimir Sufal, a Zuma whose knees are potentially broken without us knowing, and a Gerd who's really not in the best vein of form. And Emerson... They can who... do that, to be fair. <laughs> <laughs> There's one thing uh, yeah, he, do, yeah, he, he is rapid. Um, and then, yeah, Emerson, who nine times out of ten is in the final third and then trying to run, run back as fast as he can. So the high line doesn't really work incredibly well. So I think, yeah, maybe I would not be surprised if we, yeah, do see that sort of revert back to the, the classic Moyes way because he can now sit there and go, no, it doesn't work. <laughs> well, you talked about Mikel Antonio in your section just before that, and we'll come on to his performance. So I do want to talk a little bit about individual performances and actually around Antonio, just some of the ridiculous overreaction from, from the yeah. fan base to, to, to one game. Um, but, but before we do that, let's talk about a positive, and that's after the international break, he's had a really good start to the season so far, and someone who played really well throughout the entire game. Jared Bowen was yep. so, so good um, in this game. And whether we do step out and press or whether we do ask him to be more of a defensive winger and then fly forward on the counter, he's just a very, very good player, isn't he? It doesn't matter how we play. Yeah, 100%. And I think there's a real positive for us in seeing that. And I think one of the big positives for me is that he got that goal um, because I think if we came away 4-0 and he came away with nothing, then there's, it runs the risk of him losing that streak and maybe experiencing a bit of a barren spell, lack of confidence, whatever. But the fact he came away from a bad performance as probably our man of the match for from a West Ham point of view, I'd say definitely, obviously not man of the match for the game, but comes away with that goal and, and he can look at it and kind of come away with his head held high saying that he it, he was not the, the reason that we lost at all if anything he was trying desperately to to get us out of that funk and uh when he scores the goal you see him trying to rally the fans and being like come on let's get back into this and then he's kind of a key part of the 15 minute spell that we had where we were kind of controlling it nicely and everything that was good was coming through him and that's the sort of yeah, the the sort of character that we need when in these moments that's going to take the game by the scruff of the neck. And I think when you marry that with all the things he's saying in media and press and stuff about him wanting to stay here and he sees the way that the fans adopt these sort of legends of the game and how they're treated by fans when they leave and sort of, I think, obviously having played under Noble, I guess there's a big part of that. And then go <laughs> having children into a very big West Ham family and sort of seeing all the culture around that as well. I think everything suggests that he is here to stay and wants to be and yeah to see him sort of putting in a it seems weird to call it a talismanic performance in a game where we've been dubbed 4-1 but it, he was the shining star yeah and I think I'm really glad that he can come into the next game with the confidence of coming off the back of a game where he's still scored and he's still maintained that form and has come away from a bad performance looking pretty good and as well we've got the added bonus of him still fighting for that England place um, with with uh, the Euros growing ever ever closer and I think if he keeps up the form, then, uh, well, yeah, yeah. has to be on the plane, really, doesn't he? Michael Antonio? <laughs> I, um, I just, I just find it quite depressing every time he doesn't have a, a good game or we don't have a good game. It's, it's so wild, isn't it? Just how angry everyone is, um, yeah. about him. And, um, and yet, he didn't play particularly well, but he still created chances for his teammates. He kind of just 
did what he usually uh, does, just not as well as he usually would do it. Um, and and a lot of the criticism around him seems to constantly come back to, to the issue of you know, him not scoring enough, which obviously we want our number nine to to score goals for us. But we've spoken about it a million times on the podcast. His role it is probably more about creating creating space for others, allowing Bowen to be quite as good as he as he has yep. been, allowing people like Suchek to come into the game. And when Suchek doesn't really come into the game, um, that's also going to be a big part of, of Antonio's uh, performance. He did, I mean, there's one really, really lovely pass in the second half that he plays, crosses the ball across the box to Pakata, where yeah. completely different game if Pakata puts that away uh gets that extra yard or slides in and and puts that away and then a couple of uh decent moments in in the first half as well which wasn't a good first half in general his first touch was was off and too many sort of loose touches and loose passes and in general for me i just think it's a it's it's not a great performance and then you move on from it and he is a key player in 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 how the team functions you already spoke about just how important he is and if he doesn't play well it's a big part of why um the team doesn't function at its at, at its best level and that kind of sums up for me just how crucial he is in terms of providing a, a platform for us and then when it comes to the question of you know what do you do a lot of people calling for him to come out of the team a lot of people calling for Kudus to come into the team yeah, just good luck you know playing one in 10, more than one in 10 passes long um, to a small fella up front. It's just not going to work out. Um, if you're looking at the range of, of how regularly teams play long, we're not right at the top, but I think we play something like 11.5% of our passes long and it ranges generally from sort of one in 20 with Spurs up to sort of more towards 15% with teams like Sheffield United and, and Luton. Yeah, we're, we're near the the... the the top end of that in terms of teams that play long a lot of the time. And I just can't see how a team that relies on set pieces so much um, as, a, as a way of scoring goals and a team that relies on getting the ball long distances in one pass to get to the other end of the pitch and then attack is going to function particularly well without a physical presence at the, a, a big physical presence at the top end of the pitch. Yeah, no, I completely agree. Um, I, I think, yeah, largely he's on a hiding to nothing when he starts because there's there's no one else that can do that, and that's not his fault. <laughs> like he is he is the only player at the club that is capable of doing that role, and Mikel Antonio is not in charge of transfers, uh, and he has himself come out and said that he wants like competition and stuff he said last season and sure there's been things he said about other strikers at the club that maybe he would have been advised not to say uh, in public forums however I think to demand much more from him um, like sure yeah you like you said you want your nines to score goals and everything and yeah okay maybe it's not so bad to expect slightly higher standards but also like he the things that you want him to do, which is like the carrying and the the taking on and sort of spearheading counterattacks, he did. Like he came away from the game with four progressive runs. He completed a hundred percent of his dribble take ons. Um, like he created chances for teammates. Like I don't. That's kind of yeah. That's that's his bread and butter, and and he did that. And that's what Moyes asks him to do. So if he's doing the job that the managers asked him to do, then kind of yeah. I don't, I don't know. It just it. I understand the frustration because everyone has this notion of oh well he's not technically gifted and he's not scoring enough goals, which is what everyone thinks a number nine should do. But I think if you analyse it a little bit more with a 
with a bit more of a magnifying glass and and kind of see the connections between the things. It's like, okay, well, Antonio's not scoring, but Bowen's also in some of the best form he's been in since that season previously when he came away with 20 goal contributions. Like The reason for that is because Antonio is doing his job properly. And I think we saw it last season when both Bowen and Suchek sort of had somewhat of a nadir in terms of their form since they've both arrived at West Ham and a large part of that was that we were kind of chopping and changing strikers a lot we tried things with Skamaka we tried things with Ings and Antonio wasn't was in and out of the team and when he was in the team we were sometimes trying to play a slightly different style of football and as a result it doesn't bring the best out of Bowen or Suchek and I don't like to think where we would be this season without Bowen or Suchek's goals uh, or Sufal's assists for that matter because by dragging everything sort of the way that Antonio shifts, it's like he kind of peels out to the left and drags the defensive structure over there because of his physicality. It it, it demands that the defence consider him and, and do something. And if you can shift the focus onto that side, it creates all this space on the right for Sufal to get down and get crosses into the box and for Bowen to peel in and occupy those central areas that have been vacated by the defenders because Antonio's dragged them further away from the centre of the goal. So without all of that, like we'd be a much worse team. So I, I get it. I would love a Marcus Turam or, or a Brilliam Bolo who is technically gifted and as physically Im- impar- impressive as, as Antonio, but we don't have one of those. And yeah, uh, until we have one, I don't know what more to expect. I suppose the alternative would be like you say, Kudus up top and that would require us to kind of go back to trying to do what we did before where we play require us to have a different manager. That's the, yeah, just, yeah, that's exactly. the flat that's reality it. of the yeah. situation is it would require us to have a different manager. That, it, that yeah. is as simple as it is, you know, and I, I think, just, yeah, I think Kudus can do the sort of the ball carrying job. We know that, but like it would require him to receive the ball to his feet and, and then turn the defender rather than receive the ball to his chest or his shoulder or his ass or his head, which is what Antonio kind of specializes in. Um, and I think, if we can do the difficult bit, which is create the counter, but play it on the deck and get the ball into Kudus's feet quickly before the defensive reset, and then he's allowed to spin and drive, then yes, it could work. But there's a whole lot of steps and a whole lot of expectation on us being able to head the ball out or or block a shot and then somehow find the ball at Kudus's feet in the final or like on the halfway line without us just hoofing it to him. And then if we hoof it to him against most of the centre-backs in the Prem, like unless the reason we've not seen much of him is because Moyes has been feeding him protein and getting him on the heaviest dumbbells in the gym. And then we're going to be sat here with egg on our face because everyone's going to go, you guys don't know shit. It's like, yeah, well, I didn't know he was going to come out with <laughs> arms the size of tree trunks ready to brawl. Like, but yeah, I don't, I don't think the that's Triore project. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's it, man. Um, <laughs> No, yeah. but like like you say, if you want to play out and play the ball on the deck to Kudus, you're gonna like can we, we'll give Arsenal Thomas Suchek instead. Can we have Declan Rice back? <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. It's not gonna work with an yeah. Alvarez Suchek double pivot. And we've seen like we talked about, you know, when you have Alvarez Will Prowse as the double pivot and Suchek ahead, then you create your defensive a whole host of other defensive issues because Will Prowse isn't quite so good. Um, in those spaces, as as Thomas says, so I think you know there there it's an interesting game. It's it's a step backwards. Obviously, we would have liked to have taken something from it. I don't think it's as dramatic as as a lot of people are making out. It was a much tighter game than the scoreline suggested. If you look at Villa's goals, we gave them a stupid penalty. We were not in the game for Bailey's goal right at the end. So you're looking at the two 
other goals and one's a deflected long shot and the other one is just an excellent finish from Watkins after a wonderful pass from McGinn that if could have controlled we would have been on possibly for an equaliser so you know it's not a huge difference between the teams but what where the difference is is in some of those things that Moyes talked about in being hard to to be being clinical when you're going forward those are the things that Villa were in the situations where they did come under pressure they had loads of corners against them they defended them really yeah. really well and then yeah. when they got their opportunities they took them and um and and that's the gap uh, and in order to bridge that gap you're going to need players who have been talked about going to Man City for 80 million to be on their best form and um and your striker to be at their best as well um and and you know if you're not there if you're not all there at 100% then then this is what happens so yeah i'm not massively i'm not hitting any panic buttons at, <laughs> after this one um disappointing result and uh yeah i think there's going to be an interesting week now we've got a game against Olympiacos which will be uh important actually I think in terms of what we can do when it comes to sort of the back end of the group stage if we win this then it puts us in a great position to to kind of rotate very heavily in the back end of the of the group stage and focus entirely on the on the league fixtures um and then after that you've got the game against Everton who probably performed a little bit better than their league position suggests but um, we have got big questions to answer, I think, about what happens when Emerson is not in the team and just being a progressive machine from left back. Um, is Cresswell fit? Is he going to be able to contribute in the same way on the overlap? Do you lose the relationship that's made Packeter so effective in lots of games from the left? And if you lose that, do you suddenly look like you have a bit of a weird fit on the left side? How are you going to deal with the fact that you know, it's a Sean Dyche team and their front two are going to be really bloody annoying every time you have the ball in, in defence and you lost your player who's really comfortable at dealing with pressure and constantly playing one-twos to get you out of it. Lots of questions um, to answer in that game. Be interesting to see how, how we deal with it. Um, but yeah, it's been a really positive start to the season and let's please, I know I'm, I'm, I'm screaming into the void here, but please let's not throw all our toys out the pram at the first sign of... Uh, of serious trouble um right thank you cal thank you for listening everyone um please do head over to analysticsunited.co.uk um support slash members if you want to support the pod i am gonna because i said i would put out a little um collection of of slides talking about how the press didn't quite function and and ways in which the players did find fixes on the pitch at times um and and generally how west ham should potentially move forward when looking at how to match up box midfield systems so that the six doesn't become quite so easily outnumbered and so that we don't find ourselves with such big gaps in these games in the future so i'll get that out um hopefully at a similar-ish time to 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 the pod going up and um and yeah we'll catch you next week um oh i should also apologize right at the end of the podcast i should apologize because we weren't around last week i have (laughs) half of that pod together um but it, we weren't able to pull the, the the full pod together in time and i'm hoping uh because i do think that pod is is really good some of the stuff that we've already got together for that pod is really good and i'm really looking forward to putting it out i'm hoping that we can do that for the november international break instead um nice. so yeah apologies for the week off i needed it <laughs> <laughs> right catch you all next week in a bit sports social podcast network